0: Thank you, Dad, thank you, Sarah, for playing for us this morning. Please take your Bibles and turn to Luke 6. We'll be looking at verses 1 through 11 this morning, and the title of the message, What Really Matters. At the end of Luke 5... Jesus had told the scribes and Pharisees that he was bringing new wine. You recall that message from two weeks ago. It's not that he was bringing something different in essential character. Wine has the same foundation of, of grapes, but definitely different in direction and emphasis. Jesus is stretching their minds, their understanding of spiritual things. That being everyone, the scribes, the Pharisees, even his disciples. He's calling them to see beyond what their traditions had taught them mattered to God and rather to see what truly mattered to God. It wasn't that the law was wrong. Indeed, Jesus Christ came under the law and he came to fulfill the law. It was just being misunderstood. It had fallen out of balance. The scribes and the Pharisees were living it out in a way that allowed them to do this checklist while at the same time having their hearts a total mess. And this wasn't really a new message that Jesus was giving here. This concept of new wine of God's people missing the mark, even though they were living by the law, is something we find all throughout the Old Testament. It's warned about in Deuteronomy. And especially as we get into the prophets, the major and minor prophets, it's everywhere that God was rebuking the nation, not because they weren't following the precepts of the law, but because they, as they followed the precepts, the letter of the law, the things that they did, their heart was so far from God. Consider a few of these examples this morning, the first one being in Isaiah chapter 1. I'll read to you verses uh, 10 through 20. God, speaking through Isaiah, he says, Hear the word of the Lord, ye rulers of Sodom, speaking to the nation of Israel, calling them Sodom, that morally evil city of, of Genesis. He says, Give ear unto the law of our God, ye people of Gomorrah. To what purpose is the multitude of your sacrifices unto me? saith the Lord. I am full of the burnt offerings of rams and the fat of fed beasts, and I delight not in the blood of bullocks or of lambs or of he goats. When ye come to appear before me, who hath required this at your hand to tread my courts? Bring no more vain, meaning empty oblations, vain sacrifices, empty sacrifices. Incense is an abomination unto me. The new moons and Sabbaths, the calling of assemblies I cannot away with. It is iniquity, even the solemn meeting, your new moons and your appointed feasts, my soul hateth, they are a trouble unto me, I am weary to bear them, and when ye spread forth your hands, I will hide my eyes from you, yea, when ye make many prayers, I will not hear, your hands are full of blood, wash you, make you clean, put away the evil of your doings from before mine eyes, cease to do evil, learn to do well, seek judgment, relieve the oppressed, Judge the fatherless. Plead for the widow. Come now, and let us reason together, saith the Lord. Though your sins be as scarlet, they shall be as white as snow. Though they be red like crimson, they shall be as wool, if ye be willing and obedient. Ye shall eat the good of the land, but if ye refuse and rebel, ye shall be devoured with the sword, for the mouth of the Lord hath spoken it. So Isaiah is writing... During the reign of several kings. And this king, at the beginning, was King Uzziah. He was one of the best kings in Israel's history. And yet, as Isaiah writes to the people, he says, you've missed it. You're giving the sacrifices. You're doing the feasts. You're coming and you're bringing bullocks. But your heart is so far from me. If you really want to please me, start relieving the fatherless and widows. Start ministering to the oppressed. Start seeking judgment. Start doing what is right. He's not saying don't do those other things. Don't do what the law commands. What what he's saying is if you do what the law commands physically, but your heart is in a place of evil and malice, you're missing the point. You're missing the point. And God's not pleased. He would say a similar thing through Hosea Hosea 6, 4 through 6. Hosea writes, O Ephraim, what shall I do unto thee? O Judah, what shall I do unto thee? For your goodness is as the morning cloud, and as the early dew, it goeth away. Therefore have I hewed them by the prophets. I have slain them by the words of my mouth, and thy judgments are as the light that goeth forth. For I desired mercy and not sacrifice. The knowledge of God more than burnt offerings. God wanted the offerings. He wanted the sacrifices, or else he would not have commanded them in the law. But what he really wanted for, was for them to worship him in the context of obeying him, and they missed that. We could go to many more passages. I've got a huge list in my Bible of of passages that say the same thing. If you ever want that, just let me know. I can get that to you. But it's perhaps sufficient for us to understand that the idea that's being given here is that the nation had missed the boat, metaphorically, when it comes to understanding just what God wanted of them. But it wasn't something that just magically appeared when Christ came. Christ came and said, look, Pharisees, you're missing the boat. And they could have read Isaiah, Hosea, Malachi, uh, Micah, Jeremiah, Ezekiel, and found the same message, that you can't just do the things that you're expected with a heart that's far from God. Jesus was the final word on these issues, however, He was not saying or doing anything that one would not expect if they truly understood the message of God, but he was doing things in a way that was unexpected. And Israel had missed it because they had missed what God had already given them. And they were at risk of missing what God was going to do next. If I may put it in terms of that which Jesus said in Luke chapter 5, He told them that no man desires the new wine, for they'll say the old is better. Israel had drunk of the old wine of their understanding of the traditions and laws for so long that as Jesus came presenting a new way of thinking about it, not contradicting the law, but a new way of thinking about it, that new wine tasted horrible to them. They didn't get it. And they were at risk of rejecting it altogether. So today we're going to consider two accounts both on Sabbath days, through which Jesus is going to make one point. As his words in Luke 5, forgiving the paralytic of his sins, were deeply controversial, shocking, and offensive to the Jews, so too now his actions will be deeply controversial, shocking, and offensive to particularly the scribes and the Pharisees. Actions which will not be an offense to God, but will be an offense to those who claim to speak for God. So let's dig in this morning and we'll understand these matters together. Beginning in verse 1 of Luke 6, we read this, And it came to pass on the second Sabbath after the first, that he went through the cornfields, and his disciples plucked the ears of corn and did eat, rubbing them in their hands. The phrase the second Sabbath after the first is, is a very strange phrase in the Greek. It could literally be translated the second first Sabbath. The second first Sabbath. Most writers believe that it's a reference to a certain time of year, a particular time of year, namely the second Sabbath of the Passover. So the, 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 um, you had the Passover and then you had the week, the Feast of Unleavened Bread. And the Passover would begin on a Sabbath and then there was a second Sabbath going into the Feast of Unleavened Bread. And many believe that this would, would be the second Sabbath, um, that second first Sabbath after the Passover, into the Feast of Unleavened Bread. And what the Jews would do is they would count down to the weeks of Pentecost through the Sabbath. So that you'd have the first Sabbath, then the second after the first, then the third after the first, then the fourth after the first, going all the way 50 days, uh, 7 weeks, to the Feast of Pentecost. And this seems like a pretty reasonable explanation, although nobody is fully sure why it's called this, why it's called the second Sabbath after the first or the second first Sabbath. And the only reason why, there's there's a bit of a, a, a flag in my mind about this. The only reason why I would question that explanation is because Luke is writing to a Gentile audience here, right? He's writing to most excellent Theophilus, a Gentile man. And we find that quite regularly through the book of Luke, if there's some sort of very Jewish specific element, Luke tends to explain himself. He tends to explain that specific element because he knows he's writing to a, a Greek who may not understand the Jewish traditions. And he doesn't explain this one. So it might not be something as Jewish oriented. Or at least it's something that the broader range of, of people in the culture might have understood already. I, that, that's the one thing that ticks in my mind that, that gives me pause about what most people believe this second first Sabbath idea means. So you can kind of judge that for yourself. I don't really have the answer for you. But really it's neither here nor there because the essential thing is that we understand that this is happening on a Sabbath day. And on the Sabbath day, Jesus and his disciples are going through a cornfield and they're plucking the ears of corn and they're eating them. They're rubbing them in their hands. They're breaking them up and they're eating the corn. And it's important to understand not only was this action not a violation of the Mosaic law, but in fact it was explicitly allowed in the Mosaic law. In Deuteronomy chapter 23 verse 25, we read this: "When thou comest uh, um, yes, excuse me, when thou comest into the standing corn of thy neighbor, then thou mayest pluck the ears of thy, with thine hand, but thou shalt not move a sickle unto thy neighbor's standing corn." So the law said, "If you're walking through a field, you can take an ear of corn." And eat it. But you can't harvest your neighbor's corn. You can't go with a sickle and take what's theirs. That's stealing. But you can take the ears off in order to be sustained for that moment. So the issue here is not stealing. Neither really is that the issue that the the scribes and the Pharisees bring up here. The issue at hand, we read in verse 2. And certain of the Pharisees said unto them, Why do ye that which is not lawful to do on the Sabbath days? So the problem is not what they were doing, it's when they were doing it. It's not that they were plucking corn, it's that they were plucking corn on a Sabbath day. Something that Jewish tradition regarded as unlawful on the Sabbath. Now as we consider the Jewish sabbatical law and their customs, we remind ourselves of God's command to the nation throughout the Old Testament. In Exodus uh, 35, verses 2 and 3, we read this. Six days shall work be done, but on the seventh day there shall be to you an holy day, a Sabbath of rest to the Lord. Whosoever doth work therein shall be put to death. You shall kindle no fire throughout your habitations upon the Sabbath day. So God taught the Sabbath laws. It's also a part of the Ten Commandments in Exodus 20. And he did so as a parallel to his creation. In the same way that God created the world in six days and on the seventh day he rested. Not because God was tired, right? God didn't get tired. But as a example, as a model, God chose to rest on the seventh day. And then he created this system of six days of work and one day of rest. It's why we have a seven-day week. It's why there was a Sabbath in Mosaic Law. God stated that men should rest one day in seven, a principle that's baked into the very image of God and man. But in Jewish culture, unlike the church, the specific day to rest was mandated. And that's, that was the seventh day of the week, the final day of the week. And as God's creative work is the model for the Sabbath Sabbath day, the Jews saw any act of creation as explicitly prohibited. Now, as we look into the law, we see that they were to rest, that they were not to plow their fields, that they were not to kindle fires, that they were not to harvest on this day. It was to be a day where they, they did not do their regular work. However, throughout the centuries, Jewish tradition took this concept and inflated it. So that today there are 39 categories of activities that are explicitly prohibited on the Sabbath. And within that category, there could be dozens of explicit things that you cannot do within each of these 39 categories. Now, I've not researched sufficiently to be able to tell you how many of these existed in the time of Christ. But as I go through a few of these categories, I think you'll see... Um, some interesting ideas here about what God commanded and then where the Jews took it. So, according to the Jewish Mishnah Shabbat, which is their book of, of the Sabbath, planting is prohibited on the Sabbath day. And this makes sense, right? Because planting is hard work. You go out and you plant your field, that's a lot of work, that's prohibited, that's work on the Sabbath day. However, then you learn that according to the Mishnah Shabbat today, Planting involves anything that promotes plant growth, which means you can't even water your flowers on the Sabbath day because that promotes a plant to grow, and so they consider that planting. Plowing was prohibited on the Sabbath day. Plowing's hard work. That makes sense. Until you learn that you can't move dirt because if you move dirt, then you have moved, you, you have gone through a process that is the same as plowing. So if you were to take your lawn chair out on the Sabbath and you were to set it in a dirt pile and that dirt were to have been moved or you were to have dug into the dirt a little bit with your lawn chair, you have broken the Sabbath in Jewish tradition because you have moved dirt, which is the same as plowing. So reaping was prohibited by law, and that makes sense because you take a sickle to to wheat or corn, that's hard work. Until you learn that reaping comprises by their definition any severing of a plant from its source of nutrition. Which means if you were to go out on the Sabbath day and pluck a blade of grass, you have now offended the Jewish tradition laws. Because you have severed a piece of grass from its roots. And this was the problem that Jesus encountered. They are severing the corn from the vine. And so they are breaking the Sabbath law in the eyes of tradition. And I hope you can see the problem here. Planting is work, but watering a plant really isn't. Plowing is work, but moving soil around on the ground really isn't. Reaping is work, but plucking an ear of corn really isn't. None of these, these things violate God's command of rest for the body. But the Jews had, and and indeed yet have, through Orthodox Judaism today, shackled themselves to these expectations with the direct teaching that to violate this standard is to sin against God, to violate his law. Now the standard itself is okay if you want to live by that. But it's not a violation of God's law to pluck an ear of corn. And this was the controversy here. What's very interesting, however, about Jesus' response to their charges is that he does not at any time actually argue their interpretation of the Sabbath. He doesn't say, well, you're, you're being too strict here. You're arguing, uh, you're, you're, your interpretation is, is far too strict. Nor does he bring up their hypocrisy and how they enforce it. He will do that. He'll do that in Luke 13 and 14. We'll get there in a couple of months. But he, he's not going to do that today. Our theme in the Gospel, remember, one of the primary themes in this Gospel, the Gospel of Luke, is that Jesus is showing his authority. And as we consider this theme of authority, the event in question becomes a little more clear. Verses 3 and 4, we read this, Jesus answering them said, have you not read so much as this? What David did when himself was hunger." And they which were with him, how he went into the house of God, and did take and eat the showbread, and gave also to them that were with him, which is not lawful to eat, but for the priests alone. So Jesus asks them, have you not read in scriptures? And he brings up an account that is uncomfortable for me. Because where Jesus is not offending the law implicitly, or even explicitly, by plucking corn, David did break the law, in that he ate of the showbread. That was only for the priest deed. And Jesus draws this example out to try to teach a lesson. The passage we're speaking about is found in 1 Samuel 21. Uh, we went through 1 Samuel several months ago. Uh, perhaps you remember, David is fleeing from Saul for the first time. He's finally found out that Saul means to have him killed. Jonathan confirms that David flees, and he flees to the, ta- the tabernacle of God, which is in Nob. And he speaks with the high priest named Ahimelech. And he deceives Ahimelech. He tells Ahimelech that he's on an errand for the king, when in fact he's fleeing from the king. And he tells Ahimelech, I'm on an errand for the king. My men that are with me, it's a secret errand. They're out hiding in the woods. I'm the only one here and I need sustenance. Do you have sustenance and do you have weapons? I don't have a weapon because I had to leave so quickly and I don't have any food. And he makes this request of Ahimelech in 1 Samuel 21. And we pick up reading in verses 4 through 6. The scriptures say, And the priest answered David, and said, There is no common bread under mine hand, but there is hallowed bread. That would be the show bread. If the young men have kept themselves at least from women. And David answered the priest, and he said unto them, of a, of a truth, women have been kept from us about these three days, since I came out, and the vessels of the young men are holy, and the bread is in a manner common, yea, though it were sanctified this day in the vessel. So the priest gave him hallowed bread for there was no bread but the show bre- there but the show bread that was taken from before the Lord to put hot bread in the day when it was taken away. So David is in great need and Ahimelech's only source of support would be the, ha- the, the previous week's hallowed bread from the tabernacle. Not the bread that was actually sitting on the table, but the bread that Ahimelech had taken after he replaced it with the new bread for the week. And what happens would be that they would take that old bread, and that would be the priest's bread to eat. We find this regulation in Leviticus 24, verses 5 through 9. And thou shalt take fine flour and bake twelve cakes thereof. Two tenths deal shall be one cake. And thou shalt set them in two rows, six in a row, upon the pure table before the Lord. And thou shalt put pure frankincense upon each row, that it may be on the bread for memorial, even an offering made by fire unto the Lord. Every Sabbath... He shall set it in order before the Lord continually being taken from the children of Israel by an everlasting covenant. And it shall be Aaron's and his sons and they shall eat it in the holy place for it is most holy unto him of the offerings of the Lord made by fire by a perpetual statue. So the cakes are baked, 12 in all. They would take them and they'd they'd stack them by twos, six in a row, uh, across and they would place that before the Lord. And then they'd take the old showbread, and that would be the high priests to eat in the tabernacle before the Lord, and this was to be the most holy of all of the things that he were to eat. So every, every week people would come, and they'd bring bullocks, and they'd bring lambs and such, and they'd be slain on the altar, and a part of that would be for the priest to eat. And this showbread was the same way. So Ahimelech had this showbread. He had last week's showbread, and throughout the week he was eating it before the Lord in the tabernacle. And this is the bread that he gave David to eat with, with only the condition that David and the men that weren't with him, but he said were with him, uh, that only they, if they were clean, if they were ceremonially clean, if they had not gone in unto a woman, and he said they've not gone in unto a woman and indeed their vessels are clean. Well, of course their vessels are clean, they're non-existent. Uh, he didn't have any men with him. Uh, so, so he gets the bread and then he flees. So what just happened here? Ahimelech and David broke the letter of the law. But for what purpose? The bread was Ahimelech's to eat. It was given to him. It was his, he had authority over that bread. And he gave up his privilege of eating it to help another in need. Now, we're going to be careful here, particularly as we get into application because I'm not preaching moral relativity. I'm not preaching that in certain circumstances what God says is wrong can be right. But this was a ceremonial law that Ahimelech every week faithfully performed. A brother was in need and all he had was this bread. He made sure that the man he was giving it to was ceremonially clean And then in a one-time fashion, he yielded this bread to David to help him. He took the authority that he had over the bread and he gave it over to meet one in need. Ahimelech's intent was not to spurn God's authority, was not to spit on God's law. It was not to violate the law of God. This isn't what Ahimelech wanted. His heart was not in a place where he's like, yes, I finally get to violate God's law here. He was being careful He was being deliberate and there was a need. We know that he was being careful and deliberate because he insisted that David be clean. Ahimelech loved God and he had every intent, every week of eating the showbread in the tabernacle before the Lord in obedience to God's command. But here was a one-time instance where Ahimelech was being asked to violate the letter of the law to sustain a fellow man of Israel. And so he in good conscience within the context of a desire to love and honor God, sustained his brother in need. If I may put it this way, Ahimelech allowed a one-time violation of the letter of the law, but he never yielded the spirit of the law. And we'll see Jesus give examples of this again. In, In Luke 13 and 14, he'll rebuke the Pharisees and he'll say, which one of you having an ox that falls into a ditch on the Sabbath will not get it out, right? You'll break the Sabbath on one Sabbath day in order to save the life of the ox because it's right to do so. But you wouldn't just go out and do anything you want on a Sabbath. This is a one-time violation for a greater need. This is the idea here. And that's what happened between David and Ahimelech. And so Jesus confronts them on this scenario. Did David really do something wrong in eating the hallowed bread in need as a one-time effort to sustain his life in a time of trouble? And if David and Ahimelech's actions can be seen as reasonable even before the Lord, then why would Jesus and his disciples on the Sabbath going and picking corn for their own sustenance be a problem? Why is that so unreasonable? And then Jesus drives his point home. Remember we just mentioned authority. Ahimelech had authority over the showbread. God has authority over the Sabbath. And Jesus drives his point home and he says even if we were doing something that that you're troubled with, verse 5. And he said unto them that the Son of Man is Lord also of the Sabbath. Just as Ahimelech had authority over that showbread, Jesus has authority as God in flesh over the Sabbath day. He is Lord Sabaoth, as we sang this morning in a mighty fortress is our God. All throughout the Old Testament, God calls it my Sabbath. He has that authority and the disciples are being sustained under the authority of the God of the Sabbath. So then why are the Pharisees so upset? Jesus and the disciples were not doing this despite God's law. They just needed food. They were hungry. They weren't doing it in rebellion and there was nothing wrong with what they had done by the law's standard. Well, that's case one. We're going to go to a second case on the next Sabbath day, beginning in verse 6 through, through verse 11. And Lord willing, as we study this second case study, it will become even more clear where Jesus is going with this. Verses 6 and 7. And it came to pass, also on another Sabbath, that he entered into the synagogue and taught... And there was a man whose right hand was withered, and the scribes and the Pharisees watched him, whether he would heal on the Sabbath day that they might find an accusation against him. Another Sabbath day, Jesus is entering into the synagogue and he's teaching, and there was a man there with what the Bible calls a withered hand. We don't know exactly what that was, maybe some sort of shrunken limb or or something of the sort. Uh, But here are the scribes and Pharisees, and they're not listening to Jesus teach. They're not interested in the teaching of this man. They're just waiting to see if he'll heal this guy on the Sabbath. So that they can accuse him. Remember, all creation is no. No go on the Sabbath. No creation. If Jesus is healing a man's hand that's withered, he's going to have to create bone, tissue, sinews, muscle. He's going to have to create. And they're, they're looking to accuse him. We read verse 8. But he knew their thoughts and said to the man which had the withered hand, Rise up and stand forth in the midst. And he rose up and stood forth. You can kind of maybe see Jesus dragging this out a little bit to see see how the scribes and Pharisees are reacting. So the man stands up, and then we read in verse 9, Then Jesus said unto them, I will ask you one thing to these scribes and Pharisees, one question. Is it lawful on the Sabbath days to do good or to do evil, to save life or to destroy it? Should I really bypass blessing this man simply because of the day of the week? Should I really not help this man? Tell him to come back tomorrow? What if, what, what if that won't work? Should I really bypass an opportunity to bless this man because it's the Sabbath day? Just like the cornfield. Jesus is not seeking to spit in the face of the law. He's not trying to ignore the concept of the, fab, of the Sabbath. But is it really unlawful to take a moment to heal a man's hand? simply because that healing is considered an act of creation and so regarded as work by Jewish tradition? Does that kind of an attitude, does that spirit really please God? Jesus is stretching here. He's stretching their minds. Perhaps he's stretching some of us this morning. Our thinking, our way of thinking. Verse 10, And looking round about upon them all, he said unto the man, Stretch forth thy hand. And he did so, and his hand was restored whole as the other. No one says anything when Jesus asks his question, so he just tells the man to stretch forth his hand, perhaps a little bit grieved. And the hand is restored whole. Now, a withered hand has just been made whole. Literally bone, muscle, tissue has been created before their eyes. And you think, you know, you'd get a, wow, amazing... The impossible has just happened. A miracle has happened before my very eyes. But that's not what the Pharisees say. Verse 11. And they were filled with madness and communed one with another what they might do to Jesus. Do you see the problem here? They just saw a withered hand made whole. And that word madness in the Greek literally means not in one's mind. They went out of their mind angry at this they completely ignored the fact that Jesus had just done this incredible miracle and they were angry that he did it on the seventh day of the week and they flew into a rage instead of praising God they conspired to ruin Jesus sure the man had been teaching God's law and teaching it accurately he then exemplified the love of God by healing a man with a withered hand by doing what he could for this man but he did something that they considered wrong on the Sabbath. He broke their tradition, so he must be put down. Can you see just how unreasonable this is? And this is the beginning of Jesus' campaign, which will span many months of his earthly mystery, to redeem the law from the distortion of the Jewish tradition by appealing to his authority, uh, his authority as the word of God. And those are our two accounts Seeing Jesus' authority on the Sabbath day. Now, how can we take this and apply it? I've got five application points this morning. So we'll have to hasten through them. First, we need to appreciate the difference between biblical principles, biblical commands, and biblical standards. We've talked about this before, but it is foundational and we need to understand it. Biblical principles are broad, sometimes ambiguous definitions of what God loves and what God hates. It's a general road map to the character of God. It requires us to pinpoint concepts and act in light of those concepts. Sometimes they're subject to interpretation. So uh, the Bible says, love not the world, neither the things that are in the world. That's a principle. We have to define what the world is. We have to define what it means to love it. And then we have to act accordingly. That's a Principle. The Bible says, grieve not the spirit of God. So we need to understand who the spirit of God is, what it means to grieve him, and then we need to respond appropriately. The Bible says to adorn oneself in modesty. So we need to understand a definition of modesty. We need to understand how that applies to both men and women, and then we need to Apply it. The Bible says to be filled with the Spirit. And so we need to allow, uh, understand who the Spirit is, how we are filled with Him, and then how we can be filled with the Spirit. Those are overriding principles. They they require us to do some thinking, to do some understanding, to recognize the character of God, and then to work within those boundaries. Now, biblical commands are, we might say, a subset of those principles. They're explicitly given And they have direct application along with direct warnings against sin and toward righteousness. Pray without ceasing. That's a command, right? We don't have to wonder about that. That's a command. Give without grudging. We don't have to wonder about that. Be ye kind one to another, Ephesians 4.32. That's pretty explicit, right? Uh, That's a command. Be angry and sin not. Let not the sun go down on your wrath. It's a pretty clear command. Speak every man truth one with another. Be truthful. That's a pretty clear command. These are things that we don't have to wonder about. What, what, what does it mean to be truthful? What does it mean to, well, you know, tell, tell the truth. What does it mean to be kind? Well, be kind. As you would that men should do unto you. Do ye to them likewise. Do, treat others the way you want to be treated. That's, you know, how you want to be treated. Treat others that way. Be not drunk with wine wherein is excess. Ephesians chapter 6. That, that's a pretty clear command. All, all of these take no real thought. They just take Obedience. Biblical stand. So, so biblical principles, we have to identify the character of God, identify how he works, and, and, and then recognize that umbrella. Biblical commands fit within those principles, and they are explicit. They're things that quite explicitly God says don't do, and we just need to know that and do that. And then there's biblical standards. Biblical standards are those things which we erect in our lives as individuals, as a church, or as families... And we do so to help us obey the biblical commands and help us conform to biblical principles. If we can think of it this way, they're fences. If sin is a cliff that we can fall off of, we erect fences in our lives to keep us from falling over the edge of that cliff into sin. And those fences are our standards. They protect us or our family or our church from the dangers of sin or to foster in our lives proper biblical habits. These fences will be in different places for each of us and different places depending upon our age, our ability to discern, and our maturity level. But they're all toward the same reason. Biblical standards are intended to be in our lives to keep us from violating biblical commands or biblical principles. So, As we consider this, it's important to state that that usually we start the process by identifying the commands, right? Thou shalt, thou shalt not. And then as we learn of God, we recognize deeper principles, and then we build our standards to not offend those principles or commands. We put up those boundaries. And in order to give a proper example of this, I'd like to give an example, and because we've been teaching on the Sabbath day, why don't we use the Sabbath day as a good example of this? We could expand it to many areas of the Christian life. But let's talk about the Sabbath. In the text today, we find the controversy about the Sabbath. It was the final day of the week, and it was to be a day of rest for the nation of Israel. To break the Sabbath was to break God's law. So important was God's Sabbath that it is, in fact, in Exodus 20, as one of the Ten Commandments. Throughout church history, however, the church has had a unique relationship to the Sabbath, I was reading one commentator the other day and he was saying we must not allow that Sabbath to be given up. And he, was, uh, he, he wrote in the early 1800s. I don't read many people from the 19, uh, late 1900s. They're not really worth reading. Theologians from the past 50 years, just just start back farther. Um, my, my recommendation to you. Um, but he was, he was saying we must not give up this Sabbath. Now the church historically has not met on the seventh day of the week, right? It historically has met, like we have today, on the first day of the week. And we have so for a very important reason. The first day of the week uh, is the day of the week when the most significant single event in the history of mankind took place. The resurrection of Jesus Christ. It took place on the first day of the week. Now the New Testament tells us in Acts 20 verse 7 and 1 Corinthians sixteen two that believers met on the first day of the week. They called it the Lord's Day, and we know this because when John got his vision in the book of the Revelation, he said, I was in the Spirit on the Lord's Day. And so we recognize that it was called the Lord's Day. It was the first day of the week, and that was the day that the New Testament church chose to set aside to meet together. But what we don't find in the New Testament is an explicit command to observe the Sabbath, do we? There is no explicit command to observe a Sabbath in the New Testament. In fact, we find the very opposite to be true. Colossians chapter 2, verses 16 and 17 says this. Let no man therefore judge you in meat, or in drink, or in respect of an holy day, or of a new moon, or of the Sabbath days, which are a shadow of things to come, but the body is of Christ. When, When Paul says it's a shadow of things to come, he's saying they were a shadow of that which would come, much of which fulfilled in Christ, and then, as was mentioned a little bit in Sunday school this morning, there are some concepts that we see paralleled in the Millennial Kingdom. The Sabbath day was a shadow of that which was to come, of the rest that was found in Christ, of the Lord being our Sabbath. As we, like God, have ceased from our own works unto salvation, we find rest. And the Scriptures tell us that this rest is a, Partial rest of the full rest that we will have one day in heaven. If you want to read about that, it's in Hebrews chapter 4, specifically verses 9 through 11. So once the reality of Christ appeared, once he died on the cross and rose again, that shadow was no longer necessary. The Sabbath day has been fulfilled. There's no command in the New Testament to observe it, and in fact, Paul says, Don't let anybody judge you. If you do or don't eat meat, do or don't drink certain drinks, if you do or don't recognize a holiday, if you do or don't recognize a feast day, or if you do or don't recognize a Sabbath. And we could go to Romans 14, and we could go to 1 Corinthians 14, and we could talk about the weaker brethren principle, and whatsoever is not a faith is sin, and these concepts. And we've talked about them before, and we will talk about them to get to, again, we just don't have time today. So, there's no explicit command to the church, as there was to Israel, to observe a certain day as a Sabbath day. There's no Sabbath command. But, we do see a principle, don't we? And that principle goes all the way back to creation a one in seven principle. God rested from all his labor on the seventh day. He hallowed the seventh day. He took a day of rest, not because he was tired but because he wanted to set an example. He ordained a seven-day work week and called those who followed him to take a day off. Not just man, but beast. There was a one-in-seven principle. But we don't just see the one-in-seven principle daily, do we? Or weekly. We see that God expected the land of Israel every seventh year to have a year of rest where they would not plant on the land. And God promised that in the sixth year he would prosper them double, so that the land could be rested on the seventh year. And of course Israel didn't do that. Which is why they went into captivity for 70 years. Because there were 490 years where they refused to allow the land to rest. And God wanted to give that land back its 70 Sabbaths. So he put them out of the land for 70 years to give the land rest. But as we look at this, this, this forms a principle. And that principle is what we might call a one-in-seven principle. That God rested one day in seven. That he asked man to rest one day in seven. Beasts to rest one day in seven. The land to rest one day in seven. And I think that it would be a little bit short-sighted of us to not see a principle here. That God wants his people to rest. So we identify a principle, a one-in-seven principle. What does that mean for you? Well, for some of you it might mean... You take Sunday and you make it a day of rest. For others of you, there might be another day of the week. For someone else, it might kind of be a 24-hour period that spans from one day into another that you consider. For for some of you, you may not take it. And you know what? That's okay too. That's okay too. We've identified a principle. I have had to learn that that principle is important to me. I was not taking a day of rest for some time and, and my body started breaking down. I need that started taking it, and I believe that that there's a blessing in it. But there's a principle. Now, the Seventh-day Adventists, they take a literal Seventh-day Sabbath, don't they? They take the Seventh-day and they observe it from Friday night at sundown to Saturday night at sundown, just as the Jews do. The Seventh-day of rest. Is that wrong of them to do? No. It's not. As long as they don't, tell us we're doing something wrong for not doing it too. That's where it becomes wrong. You do what you believe the Lord would have you to do, that's great. But don't judge others for not doing for not holding your standard to the principle. That's the concept. Others recognize a one in 7 principle, right? Their body needs rest, they take one day and they actually rest. That's great. Some won't allow their children to go out and play for one day of the week. Some won't go out to eat on one day of the week. Whatever it might be. All that's fine if you want to do that. As long as you're using those standards to help you conform to what you believe is a right principle that God has given. And you're not trying to judge others by your standard. Because it's a standard that you've erected to conform to a principle that you've identified. For others still, you don't... Regard a Sabbath and according to Colossians chapter 2, Paul says don't judge them on keeping of a Sabbath day because we're not under the law and Christ is our, our rest. This is perhaps not the clearest example. If I were going to choose an example, I wouldn't choose the Sabbath because it's, it's uh, something that we, we have been completely released from today. Um, but I did kind of kill two birds with one stone here using the Sabbath example that Jesus taught so that we could talk about the Sabbath as well. Um, I hope that it helped you a little bit. If you're still wondering about this, or if you want more details about principles, um, commands, and, and, and uh, standards, you can come see me. I have preached on it before. I can perhaps point you to some of the messages I've preached on that in the past. But we hasten on here this morning. Point number three, take care not to burden reasonable principles down with unreasonable standards. Take care not to burden reasonable principles down with unreasonable standards. Uh, this is a point of warning to we as particularly conservative Christians who often hold very high standards in our lives and our families. And let me just say this. High standards are not a bad thing. The older my children get and and the more I learn, the tighter my standards are, are becoming. And if I were you know if if we were to envision sin as the edge of a cliff, any reasonably careful person would not necessarily put their only fence right at the edge, right? You would at least back it up a few feet so that if you jumped over the fence or if you fell over the fence or if your ball went over the fence, you wouldn't end up at the bottom of the cliff. You'd back it up a few feet and, and, and there's, there's a reasonableness to that. People with lesser discernment, if I had small kids, I'd back it up several yards and I may even put a second fence, so that my kids would know you can't go past the first fence, and when they inevitably go past the first fence, at least there's another fence there to keep them from falling over the cliff. But, and I, I speak here specifically in the context of, of corporate standards, of church standards, of family standards, um, where you as an authority are, are passing down standards to others, there, there comes a point where wisdom can give way to irrationality. And I say this carefully, because what I really don't want anybody to glean from this message today and I think somebody probably will but I'm not trying to give you a license to sin. I don't, I don't, please don't take that from, please don't take this as, if you feel like, okay, pastor's giving me uh, a, a pass to do something that my, my conscience is offending me and now I feel like I can because pastors prayerfully consider that what, what you're thinking you can do now that you couldn't do before is actually within the realm of, of, of God's Pleasure, and, and you can do it with a good conscience. I'm not trying to give you a license to sin here. I, I'm not trying to make you feel, feel good about something you're doing that offends God's Word. Please don't take the spirit of my message as such. But, but we can, burden. We, we have a tendency in conservative Christian circles to burden solid principles and commands down with unreasonable standards. Jesus said this in Matthew 11, verses 28 to 30. Come unto me, all ye that labor and are heavy laden, and I will give you rest. Take my yoke upon you and learn of me, for I am meek and lowly in heart, and ye shall find rest unto your souls. For my yoke is easy and my burden is light. Jesus called all men unto him, promising to give them rest. And as he did so, he said, take my yoke upon you, That a yoke being that which would constrain an oxen to, to go, to to Go in the direction you wanted it to go? There is a yoke. Christ has expectations. But he says, my yoke is easy and my burden is light. We are always at risk of having the problem of taking the easy yoke that Christ gives us and making it wholly burdensome. Knock on the doors of the people in Buffalo and you'll find that many of them believe the yoke of the church to be a deep, deep burden. But while serving God does bring with it expectations, those expectations are not unreasonable. And indeed, as we live out the proper expectations of Christ, what will without fail come out as we walk in the Spirit and as we serve the Lord, you will find unfathomable joy. A joy that surpasses other joys. We talked about that with our Thanksgiving message last week. But what can threaten this joy is when we tighten our spiritual belts so tight that we simply can't spiritually breathe. When we hold to such unreasonable standards that we don't just protect ourselves from sin, but we strip ourselves from all the joy of the Christian life. And this can produce in us one of two things. It can either cause us to hate life because of the tight standards, or it can cause us to live a double life, right? where we come to church and we look one way because we think that's what people expect, and then we go home and we go, "Ah," and then we get back to our sinful lifestyles. Because we we can't live under the yoke of the burden that we think we need to live under. It's too tight. The tradition of the elders had burdened the people of Israel to the extent that the only way they could possibly live under them was to become complete hypocrites, which was the problem in Israel. Peter, in Acts 15.10, said that this yoke of the law was a yoke which neither we nor our fathers were able to bear. Now what am I not saying? Again, please, please, let me make this clear. I'm not saying that you need to cast off your standards. I'm not saying that you need uh, to, to, to throw it all out. But what I am saying is that you need to Make sure that your standards have reasons, that they reside in their proper place in relation to an understanding of God's character, of His commands, of His principles, that we don't tighten ourselves so tight, wind ourselves so tight that we're just like a spring waiting to, waiting, waiting to, to give way. If your life has no joy, If if your standards are causing your life to have no joy, if you feel so constrained by your standards that you have no joy, there's something wrong. Because you were not designed to serve a standard. A a standard is designed to serve you. It's designed to help you. It's designed to guide you. It's designed to be there to to keep you from doing wrong. It's, it's, It's your servant. You're not its servant. So, maybe there are some fences that need to change in your life. Maybe you have not had proper fences up. You've got the edge right by the cliff. And you know, maybe the edge is, is, is just too close and you need to back it up a little bit. Or maybe it's too far back. Maybe you set the standards for your household when your kids were six. And now they're 16. And you haven't even given them the ability to have any more discernment. To give them any benefit of the, of the doubt. And so they're living under six-year-old standards. And they're 16, and, and, and maybe if the cliff's here, you, you can give them a little more wiggle room to make right choices for themselves to develop their own spiritual life. Now, don't take up all the fences. Or don't put the fence right at the edge. But, but maybe you need to re-evaluate where your where your fences are for where your family is or where our church is. Standards are good. Unreasonable standards are not. Guard yourself from sin, but guard yourself from being so fearful of sin that you can't live your life. I hope that came across properly. Point number four. The letter of the law, at the expense of the spirit of the law, does not fulfill the standard of the law. In the Old Testament, God expected his people to obey the law, to do the things which he had called them to do. But we started our sermon today by reading verses in the Old Testament where God rejected their observance of the letter of the law because they were not fulfilling the spirit of the law. In contrast, we see two men, David and Ahimelech, who breached the letter of the law in order to hold more closely to the spirit of the law. And again, I'm gonna, I want to be careful here. Please don't, don't regard this as license. This is not, I, I don't want this to become morally relativistic. God knows my heart so I can do wrong because God sees my heart. It's not quite like that. But it's, it's not okay to think that you're right with God simply because you do Christian things. It doesn't work that way. You're not implicitly right with God just because you go to church. You're not implicitly right with God just because you have standards of modesty. You're not implicitly right with God just because you don't watch a certain rating of movie. You're not implicitly right with God just because you don't listen to certain musicians or a certain type of music. That doesn't implicitly make you right with God. What makes you right with God? When you keep God's commandments. When every action that you take flows from a love for God and an intention to glorify God. When every time you put those headphones on to listen to that music, you can say this music is right before my conscience, right before God. When every time you sit down to watch that movie, you can say this movie is right before God or if it's not, I'm going to turn it off when, it's, when, when, I, when I see the problem. Because your loyalty is not to the thing, it's not to the standard, it's not to the rating, it's not to, it's to God. You love God. You want God to be pleased with you. Every day you wake up and you say, how can I please God today? You don't obey your parents just because you have to obey your parents and they'll take away your stuff if you don't. You obey your parents because that's what pleases God. You don't obey your boss just because if you don't obey your boss, you'll get fired. You obey your boss because that's what pleases God. That's the motivation. That is what is supposed to drive us. And if you're driven by a desire to please and love God, all that stuff is going to fall into place. Those standards are going to find themselves. Because you love God. And if you're doing it and God's not pleased, then you want it gone because you want to please God. If I may put it simply, 1 Corinthians 10.31. Whether therefore you eat or drink, whatsoever you do, do all to the glory of God. That's it. That's how it works. And you can enjoy life to the full in this context, can't you? You can work to God's glory. You can play to God's glory. You can fish to God's glory. You can watch television to God's glory. You, you can do those things. You can enjoy secular things while glorifying God in spirit. And if life is just nothing but a burden, then maybe something's a little bit out of balance. And It may very well be that your standards are giving you a false security as to whether or not you're right with God because you can go down your checklist every day and say, okay, I did this, did this, did this, went to church, read my Bible, but your heart is far from Him because you're not actually doing anything you're doing to glorify God. You're doing it for your own purposes. You're doing it to feel good about yourself. You're doing it to to confirm yourself in in self-righteousness, whatever the reason might be. God wants your heart and if He has your heart, the rest will fall into place. He said in John fourteen fifteen, If you love me, keep my commandments. And indeed, if you love him, you will. Final point. Guard against the pervasive human exercise of hypocritical accusation or judgmental denial. The deep desire for accusation and judgment, like the Pharisees looking at Jesus, watching him heal, and being so caught up in the fact that he healed that they, that they didn't even realize that he had just performed a miracle. It caused them to completely miss the blessing of God. They were so interested in judging his actions on the Sabbath that they missed the whole "love thy neighbor" part. Even more so, their interest in accusing Jesus was wrong, uh, of wrongdoing. Excuse me. Caused them to ignore the very supernatural miracle that they witnessed. And we can do the same. We can be so busy judging others for their failings comparing ourselves with others. I'm okay because they're doing this too. I'm better than they are at least, whether it's believers in the church or whether it's unbelievers around us. Well, at least I'm not like my neighbor doing fill in the blank. We can so be so busy identifying and engaging and, and, and judging ourselves by others or judging others, typically so that we can keep our mind off of our own failings, that we fail to identify what God's actually doing. So busy judging a man for a different music standard or dress standard that we reject him. So busy calling a man out for his failings that we fail to acknowledge that God has or could use him. And again, I I don't say that we, we should not call sin what it is or ignore compromise or any of those things. But we dare not allow... Our perception of normal Christian living to be so deeply ingrained into a set of standards that we simply become consumed with judging others based upon what they are or aren't doing that we approve of. And this can consume us. And as we fall into this mode, looking at others, comparing ourselves with others rather than comparing ourselves to the Word of God, we will stop growing. We'll stop learning. We will stop any personal progression in our spiritual life because we're so busy blaming others, and judging others, and accusing others. And this is where the Pharisees found themselves. They were so busy, stuck on what they perceived Jesus to be doing wrong, that they totally missed all that Jesus was teaching, all that Jesus was doing. And we can do that too if we're not careful. Many lessons to be learned today, all of which call us to approach the Christian life with balance and perspective. I pray that none of my points were were misunderstood or or, or improperly expressed today. My my desire, and, and I believe God's desire is expressed in his word, is that each of us would love God with all of our hearts, all of our souls, all of our might, that that would inform our every decision, that that would inform our every action, and that as we do so, we would reflect Christ to the world. If you find that this message has made you feel better about some activity which your spirit knows to be sin, uh, you've missed the point. My prayer is that this message has called you unto a consistent lifestyle of recognizing God's principles, God's commands, and then how you can erect standards for yourself, for your family, how we can erect standards for this church which are appropriate and which guide us into truth without placing a yoke of burden that God does not intend us to bear. My prayer is that you are called unto consistency in your Christian life. Unhypocritical living. Unhypocritical living. That the way you present yourself at church is the way you are at home. That the way you present yourself out and about in public is the way you are at home. That that we can live our lives without hypocrisy because we have found a place where we are doing what we believe God wants us to do and we're driven not by who's watching us except for one who's always watching us. The Pharisees and the scribes missed this because they were so busy accusing and judging And holding the letter of the law and the traditions that they directed above that which God had actually taught. May we guard ourselves from doing the same. Let's pray.